0: Welcome to the Resilient Training Lab Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome back for the March episode of the Resilient Training Lab Podcast. This month's episode, we're going to go into a deep dive of your first powerlifting meet, what to expect, what to bring, how to sign up, everything you need to know to do your first meet and why you should probably do one even if you don't think of yourself as a powerlifter. So before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about what we got going on at Resilient Training Lab. So we just finished up our February challenge. We had our five minute partner row. So be on the lookout for the results of that coming to you. Well, probably already came to you by the time this has aired. For the month of March, Our challenge is going to be a sandbag hold for time. This month, we partnered up with Victus Coffee to sweeten up the package. So each winner will get a free bag of coffee. I wanna say it's 12 ounces, whatever the standard coffee bag is. You get to choose what kind of coffee you'd like, and you get some free resilient or revolution swag t-shirts coffee mugs tanks all sorts of different things that you can choose from and the challenge this month will be that sandbag hold for time the two categories will be the lightweight and the heavyweight we'll do a 75 pound hold for time and a 150 pound hold for time And then we'll have the best male and females for each of those categories as winners. And if we have over 20 entries, we will raffle away a free month of nutrition coaching with Coach Claire. So get those entries in, tag us with your results at Resilient Training Lab at Revolution Fitness Clubs, and be entered for a chance to win. And our big event this month is the Powerlifting Meet hence the powerlifting-focused pow- podcast. So March 26th, we have our powerlifting meet. This is our drug-tested CT state championship. So please come out, support your local lifters, come watch some heavy-ass lifts. And we will also be supporting the nonprofit Open Doors Outdoors, whose mission is to get veterans and young people and their families out into the outdoors and get them moving and performing physical activity in the form of hiking and supporting them through that manner so they provide a place for veterans and young people to hike and cover all the cost involved and make an event out of it so they align really closely with our values. So we're happy to be teaming up with them for this powerlifting meet. So we'll be taking donations at the door and doing a 50-50 raffle for them. And you'll get a chance to meet the people behind the doors there. And please come out, support us, support the powerlifting meet, support the powerlifting world, and support Open Doors Outdoors. you got nothing to lose. So that's March 26th. And with this being a a podcast about signing up for your first powerlifting meet and what to expect, our next powerlifting meet is in July, and that registration is open now. So you can sign up on USPA.com for the July meet. That meet is going to be on July 23rd. That's a Saturday you want to sign up as soon as possible because the meets do fill up. So pause this podcast right now and go sign up at USPA.net. Sorry, dot, not, dot, .net, not dot, .com. You have nothing to lose. So if you don't sign up right now, hopefully by the end of this podcast, you will be signing up. So we'll put that link in the show notes, and I hope you enjoy this podcast.
2: We're hopping back into it and today we're going to talk about why you should do your first powerlifting meet. So I think a good place to start would be to hear about your first powerlifting meet, put you on the spot.
1: (laughs) Wasn't ready for that question. My first powerlifting meet was my first real powerlifting meet. I did, I did some shoddy semi real powerlifting meets in high school, uh, in, in gear. But my first real meet was my freshman year at UConn at Metal Health Gym in Wallingford. That is now like seven other gyms that (laughs) passed that gym. That's a name I
2: haven't heard in a long time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: throwback. (laughs) There was a Harley. I still
2: have a Metal Health shirt somewhere.
1: Yeah, there was a Harley Davidson in the front entrance and a guy like giving tattoos behind the counter, like in the gym throwback gym (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and the meet was on the second floor and I think it was actually only a push-pull meet and I benched in a shirt and pulled in a suit And I got red lighted on all my deadlifts because we were on the second floor. And they said I was putting my deadlifts down too hard and I was going to break the floor. (laughs) So I technically bombed out of that meat.
2: (laughs) What business was on the first
0: floor?
1: It was their gym on the first floor. uh, Oh, no. What was the... There was like a metal shop or something under there. I think it's still there. And their gym... It was technically, I guess it was technically the third floor because their gym was on the second floor and then the meet was upstairs. I don't know why they held it upstairs, but... <laughs> uh, so, it was a... It's impressive flooring. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was at UConn. I had to convince one of the upperclassmen in my fraternity to drive me to Wallingford. And my roommate to help me get in and out of my suit because i was all alone and didn't know anyone so my poor roommate at the time baby powdered my legs and <laughs> held held my suit straps so i could wiggle into it and um that that was the start of it
2: between the close to hour drive
1: yeah. <laughs> doing meat and gear is a an, a whole nother ball game <laughs>
2: Yeah, it sounds like they didn't realize they were in for an eight to ten hour commitment with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: yeah, it was a cool meet though. I think Matt Mills was there and he deadlifted something crazy and I had no idea who he was at the time. And then Vinny D'Enzo was there when he was huge. I distinctly remember him with two fold-out metal chairs sitting <laughs> taking up both of them <laughs> and just eating a of white bread and Coca-Cola throughout the meet. And he benched like probably close to 700 pounds that day. (laughs) Peak peak strength. Well,
2: (laughs) it certainly has evolved for you since then.
1: Which is Um, is what we're going to talk about uh, today. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So, but at that point you had been lifting for... Years, so what was this spark that prompted the initial sign up?
1: Yeah, so like I said in high school, I did a few kind of powerlifting meets, but they were never um, official ones because I was always hesitant to sign up. Because I was always kind of like in season for some sport, and uh, my coaches probably weren't wouldn't be too happy if I if I competed in a powerlifting meet in the middle of a season. So, as soon as I graduated, I was like, "I'm competing. Like, you know, sports are done. Like, I'm competing." So, I trained uh, all summer with the idea of competing as soon as I got up to UConn, and that is what I did. I think in hindsight. I probably made a ton of mistakes and didn't prepare well enough. And that's probably more why I bombed out than being on the second floor of a rickety gym.
2: (laughs) So in the months leading up to it, did signing up help you get through some training sessions or put a little more pizzazz in your workouts?
1: So to this day, I think the main reason I sign up for meets is for that very reason right there is training becomes much more focused and productive and, uh, easier. I think in my opinion to do when you have something to train for, it gives you a reason to not skip your sessions or to not skip your last back offset and, It gives you reason to be more mindful of what you're doing outside the gym. Usually, your training program is probably a little more intense, so you're going to be a little more careful about what you're eating and how you're sleeping and how you're managing outside stressors, and I think that is extremely valuable. Um, I don't think you need to be on 100% all the time, but I do think there is value to being on 100% and seeing – kind of the fruits of that labor. And that, like I said, to this day is one of the main reasons I continue to sign up for meets. Whenever my training is starting to feel a little stale, that's usually what I'm looking at is is, is where, what meet can I sign up for?
2: Yeah, I'd be willing to bet that leading into it, you make it this big deal. And there's possibly some anxiety around that day. Uh, but afterwards, it probably feels pretty great. And you realize that you were making it a much bigger deal in your head than it actually was. And you end up enjoying it so much, you sign up again.
1: Yep. That's uh, pretty much everything in life, right? <laughs> uh, and it, 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 the training is harder than the meat, right? So like you're going through this training program and it's hard and you're working hard and you're hitting numbers you've never hit on like a weekly basis, week after week. And you start to get nervous and build it up and you're like, Oh my God, like I'm putting in all this work. Like, am I going to fail? Like what if I don't get my lifts and it creates all this anxiety, but meat day comes around. And if, you know, you did things correctly, you should feel awesome and crush it. And then you're like, Oh, I already did the hard part. And once you realize that like, Hey, the meat's the fun part where you get to like, perform and show kind of all the effort you've been putting in and see all of the results that you've been kind of chasing. That's the most rewarding part. And I don't know I've had some bad meets and even those meets are are still fun because of just like everyone around you is so supportive and everyone knows how much work you put in to get there. And just because the pieces don't come together that particular day doesn't mean that they'll never come together. So there's always like lessons to learn every time you step on the platform that, you know, make your training better and can carry over to like everyday life and just be valuable lessons to be had.
2: Right. And I do want to talk about me prep, but before we get there, I think one of the most common, and like, this is even has been my own mindset, which has prevailed at times, especially when I was younger, is like almost wanting to wait until you have a certain total or know you'll hit certain numbers before even pulling the trigger on like jumping into competition. And I think that that can stem in part from training feeling like it's a competition rather than like an individual competition against yourself like the only goal is to be better than like you yourself were because only you are lifting under the same exact conditions and life circumstances that you have nobody else is
1: yeah the comparison game is a a slippery slope that you don't want to really play in this game i always joke around that you know there's somebody somewhere warming up with your max no matter how strong you are unless you are a certain one person so If you are comparing yourself and putting numbers up in the air like, oh, I need to hit this total so I'm competitive or this – that total so I'm competitive, you're going to end up never competing because you're just going to constantly move those goalposts because people are constantly breaking the world record and you're going to constantly be comparing yourself in like relation to that and be like, oh, you know, John Hack just totaled – whatever, 2,500 pounds two years in the future, like, oh, now I got a total two, yeah, man, yeah. before I, like, like it's yeah, like, like, if people are just going to get stronger and stronger, and if you play that game, you're never going to compete, so it's like, the goal of, I like, powerlifting is such an individual sport, like, it's just you out there on the platform, and the rewarding part of powerlifting is seeing progress within yourself and being able to beat your total from the last meet, and... The first meet, it, your total doesn't matter because you've never done a meet. So literally every lift you do is a PR because you've never done a lift to a meet standard ever. So it, you could you could go out there and do the bar for all three lifts and hit a PR on all three lifts. And as long as you are putting in effort, if that's all you can do, like every single person in that room is going to be cheering for you and clapping for you and hyping you up the same way they would hype up someone, going to squat, whatever, 700, 1,000 pounds.
2: Yeah, it's cool to see having been around at this point several meets at Revolution that exactly that. Everybody's behind you no matter what weights on the bar. And most people don't even know what weights on the bar. They don't care. <laughs> they Their kilo plates are different colors. Half of them are like gray and black, the little ones. So you, you have no idea. You're just kind of like, hey, pick it up. And everybody starts yelling. So the the environment is cool to see.
1: In fact, you don't even have to be able to use just the 45-pound bar. There are lighter bars that people use from time to time. And to be honest, those are usually the most exciting lifts to watch because it's usually some, like, (laughs) 7-year-old or some, like, (laughs) 90-year-old. Just getting after it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So after talking about some of the things that play into a first meet. You mentioned a meat prep, and I guess we should start by defining that. So how long does it need to be? How far out or yeah, like how far out should you start it? How long does it need to be? What types of things should you be looking to do throughout that process?
1: So this is an interesting topic that I wanted to touch on is I think a lot of times this idea of meat prep is what seems so scary and daunting, and keeps people from doing meats. Um, I think you hear people talk about meat prep as being hard and miserable, and them being like feeling like death and everything hurting, and it just being this monstrous process. And I think sometimes you know that can seem overwhelming. And while meat prep can be that, if you're pushing yourself to your absolute limit. Um, I don't think meat prep needs to be that, especially if it's your first meet. To be perfectly honest, I've had multiple people just train normally into their first meet and take a little bit of a deload taper week, the week of the meet to be well rested and, and go after it. And if it's your first meet, like I said, everything's a PR. So that might be your best scenario if that's one of the obstacles holding you up from doing a meet is your meat prep doesn't need to be 12 weeks. It doesn't need to have singles every week for 12 weeks. You don't need to be hitting RPE nines for months on end. Um, You can, that can look like that, but you know, it doesn't need to look like that, especially your first time. So, keeping this idea of meat prep as something that's somewhat flexible is, you know, you could train just normally into the meat. You could do a four week meat prep. You could do an eight week meat prep. You could do a 12 week meat prep, but over 12 weeks, I probably would be not focusing on the meat Um, (laughs) and just trying to get stronger in general. So I guess lengthwise keeping in mind, it can be flexible depending on, your schedule your goals and how much kind of time commitment you want to put towards it
2: yeah it's like you said there's no there's no like absolutes like it doesn't have to be something for some individuals they might respond best to like you said a lot of a lot of singles and a lot of high rpe sets but there's also people who might respond better to not that and so you don't have to kind of force yourself into a program that is suboptimal for you and kind of burn yourself out before you even get halfway there.
1: Yeah. I guess, I mean, I skipped the original question and this would tie it together is what is meat prep? I think if we define meat prep as training to allow you to express maximal strength on meat day, that can look different for a lot of different people. And I think is another topic for another conversation, but I think we fall into the trap of trying to make meat prep look a certain way with just super heavy singles and low rep, high RPE sets. And that doesn't always have to be the answer, and it's not always the best answer. Sometimes you're just trying to jam a square peg into a round hole.
2: Yeah, it's like just because this competition looks a certain way doesn't mean your training has to look a specific way outside of like, yeah, maybe a few constants. Like you're probably going to want to have a little bit of practice doing some singles leading into it.
1: (laughs) You will want to squat bench and deadlift. (laughs) I think that, I think think we can all agree on that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that, Although I I did have a coach.
1: I did have a coach tell me that I could do Bulgarian split squats all the way up until two weeks out and hit a PR. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, assuming it's your first meet. Right? No, this
1: was when I was squatting over six hundred pounds already. He told me he would train me, and, and he'd do it. I, I almost tried to take. I almost had to take him up on it, but then, then I couldn't imagine doing Bulgarian split squats only for twelve weeks. <laughs>
2: True. So you've mentioned a couple times now something like a taper or a deload week. And so where would that fall within the prep and what is the purpose of it?
1: So the overall overarching idea of meat prep is to drive training stress to drive fatigue in the body. And as fatigue mounts, your ability to show your strength and actually lift heavy things uh, decreases because the fatigue is going to mask your performance, but at the same time, that fatigue or the stress you know we're placing on the body that's causing that fatigue is the very thing that is driving adaptation. So in theory, if we can put enough stress into the system and then allow adequate time to recover, we should see a jump in performance where your performance is now higher than it was before because that stress you placed on the body is causing adaptation and now that you're completely recovered you can your fatigue is no longer masking that performance and you can actually you know lift as heavy as you possibly can so when a taper is done correctly it'll allow you to kind of dissipate that fatigue so that you can perform at your highest level but at the same time you still have to do enough that you are not detraining and losing like kind of the skills evolved in in powerlifting of squatting benching and deadlifting and kind of the neural connections needed to display strength at maximal uh, levels
2: right so i mean like if we were to say that with way fewer big words it's like when you train, you make yourself tired. It's necessary to feel tired from having a lot of training. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, if you're feeling really tired two weeks out from the meet, like, if you the point of a taper is so that you feel less tired, but it hasn't been long enough where you are no longer like trained. <laughs> yes. Uh,
1: the goal is to get you feeling as so, good as
2: possible, meat
1: day. <laughs> Or as strong as possible. I was going to say good. Good. Good's a tricky word. It's as strong as possible. Meet (laughs) that.
2: And I think the easiest. Like I'm sure we've all had sessions where we went into it not feeling great, and maybe even like the exercise that we were doing didn't feel good to do. But like you keep going up and wait, and you just kind of keep going up, and before you know it, like you're having a good performance even though it doesn't feel good. So yes, that that relationship between Fatigue and our, it's always our feelings, man. They just, give them away. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, get in the way. We solve a lot of problems. <laughs> just get them out of here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, something else that is commonly discussed in strength sports and other sports is when you are competing, you are grouped in a weight class. And some people focus more on the weight class than they do on the actual amount of weight that they're lifting. And so how did you approach or how have you, has your approach to what weight class you compete in evolved as you went from you know, novice to intermediate to more advanced?
1: So I'm an anomaly, non- I can't say that word uh, here because I've competed in weight class sports my like pretty much my whole life. Um, wrestling and then powerlifting and i've never ever ever actually no that's a lie one time in strongman i cut weight uh and that was like 10 years into my lift my weight uh class sport participation so throughout high school wrestling i told my coach to piss off and didn't cut weight because everyone cut weight in high school wrestling <laughs> then in powerlifting i just kept gaining weight and trying to beat my numbers and I think this ties closely into the point of comparing yourself to others is people want to be in certain weight classes so they're more competitive or so that they can hit, you know, certain numbers at a certain weight. And if you're instead just comparing yourself to yourself and trying to beat your past performance, I think you're going to be much less inclined to cut weight to hit a certain weight class because that weight cut is going to be detrimental to your performance. So one of my biggest pet peeves in powerlifting is people that cut weight to compete at certain weight classes um, that are not highly elite level athletes. So unless there's money on the line or a world record on the line, you probably shouldn't be cutting weight. And 99% point nine percent of you listening to this fall into that category myself included like i am pretty strong but i'm not even close to the level where i would even think about lifting uh cutting weight like you know the open power lifting if you're not in that like top 10 top 25 like there's no reason ever for you to cut weight just compete at what weight you're at you're like you're not there's you're not doing anything anyways like <laughs> people like chase these like state records and local records and this record and that federation record. And like, come on, let's be honest. If you'd put enough stipulations on that, you can find a record to break. Like your masters firefighter division, super heavyweight <laughs> bench press only slingshot division. Like you can find one that's empty.
2: <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I don't think that feels as good. That is, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, like you're, you're just one of one. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you're first, but there's no two. <laughs> okay. So anyway, when it comes to weight cuts, there's also I mean we didn't plan on talking about this, but like weight cuts could be dangerous. Like, especially if you get into water and like going crazy with gallons of water and manipulating sodium and like beyond just possibly sacking the last however many weeks of prepping to get ready for this meet and all the money you spent to compete like they're legitimately dangerous in terms of your potential like health ramifications so definitely something that gets talked about in a very like cavalier way when in reality like you're seeing it in combat sports a lot now too because like that's another sport where weight cuts are popular like your risk of having severe injuries and like being slower, having potential like traumatic brain injuries, like all that stuff's going to increase if you're cutting extreme amounts of water weight.
1: Well, yeah, people cut all this weight and then they get pissed when they can't perform. It's like, what do you, what did you think was going to happen? Like you just put this hugely stressful event on your body that like day before your meet, especially people that do like 20, 30 pound water cuts, like, and then people start using diuretics and you get people like in the hospital passing out in the sauna. So Definitely not talked about enough. I think combat sports, obviously there's a lot more money involved, have started to – a lot of them have started to institute rules with like how much weight you can cut um, so that people aren't cutting these extraordinary amounts of weight because I've seen some insane weight cut protocols and I've seen – I mean, you see guys compete in the 220s that are walking around at like 275 on meet day and it's trying to to say that's healthy is uh, (laughs) there's just just no way around it.
2: (laughs) It Sounds like the only reason they're doing that is because they're not strong enough to compete in 275. (laughs) Well,
1: it was Kevin Oak. Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Oak when he like broke the squat record world record was not 220 at that time (laughs) he weighed in at 220 which i guess you know whatever uh but
2: (laughs) i mean hey that satisfied your criteria that you laid out he did he did satisfy
1: yeah i mean he's also put his health at risk in many other ways so i'm sure that (laughs) 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 i'm sure he's cool with that he's made that
2: decision (laughs) yeah He's a household, well, as household of a name as you can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, so this week of the meet, right? We understand that like we might feel like shit. It is actually probably a good thing. If you don't feel great, we're going to avoid cutting weight, especially if we aren't setting world records, because what's the point? You want to have as you want to lift as much weight as you can. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be the lightest, you're going to put your performance more at risk than anything else. If you make any crazy changes the week before, but in terms of training, what should training look like through that? I guess we laid it out, right? We kind of laid out that we have a taper, but what exactly would a taper mean or what is the goal of the workouts? Because by this point, we've probably already driven as much adaptation as we're going to, like our body's not going to change a lot in a week. So what's the point of training leading into the meet versus like, why not just take a full week off?
1: Yeah. I think this is like the timing of all of this is gets thrown off a lot is like people get close to the meet and they're like, Oh shit, I, I need to get ready. So they like start training hard, like two or three weeks out. And like, by that time, like you said, it's too late. Like our <laughs> the adaptations we needed to drive already happen. So like t- training, like intensity and volume, like the amount of training and The hardness of your training should be the hardest, like probably like, I don't know, three to six weeks out. And then those last three weeks are getting easier and easier in the sense of you are doing less other stuff and doing more just squatting, benching and deadlifting. And then as you get closer You're going to want to do less and less until that week of the meet where you need to figure out what is the enough movement to keep you feeling fresh and kind of crisp with the squat, bench, and deadlift, but not so much movement that you're not fully recovered going into meet day. So oftentimes that week of the meet, you're not going to be doing much exercise outside of squat benching and deadlifting and maybe some like walking or light biking just to, to stay moving. And that goal there is just that to stay moving. So you feel kind of ready to go, but not to completely rest because I think a lot of times people will take that week off completely and like, all right, I'm just going to take the week off. I'll be completely rested. But I think we've all been in the situation where we take a week off or vacation or whatever, that first day back in the gym more often than not feels like crap just because it's been so long since we had something heavy on our backs. So just trying to keep that feeling from happening where you're exposing yourself to a squat bench and deadlift two or three times that week, kind of still something pretty heavy, you know, maybe a week out uh, where you're hitting numbers that are probably close to your opener uh, the weight you're going to open with for squat, bench, and deadlift, and then kind of tapering the intensity of that throughout the week. Um, that last week, the volume or the amount of training you're going to be doing is already very low, so you probably shouldn't be spending more than like 30, 45 minutes in the gym uh, tops, and that training, again, is going to be very specific, and it's going to start off relatively heavy at the beginning of the week. Like an opener is still, what, like 90%, 92%, so pretty heavy, At the beginning of the week and kind of slowly getting lighter throughout the week
2: sweet so you mentioned it should be a percentage of an opener well like if i go through meat prep right and done all my singles and i'm trying to figure out what my first attempt should be and the heaviest squat i hit throughout my meat prep was 200 pounds like i'm gonna open at 200 pounds right (laughs) so
1: (laughs) yeah of course uh (laughs) so this is the the hard part the strategy part of powerlifting right i guess is when you compete in a powerlifting meet you do the squat and then you do the bench and then you do the deadlift you get three attempts at each one so usually the competition field is broken up into flights and your flight will consist of like 8 to 12 people and that flight will do the squat together. So say you're in flight A, you'll all squat together. Then flight B will squat and flight C will squat and then flight A will bench. Um, so while B and C are kind of squatting, you can warm up for bench, etc. And in that flight, you get three attempts. So you'll start at the first person, go through the list. All of them will do their first attempt. Then they'll start back at the beginning, second attempt, Start back at the beginning. Third attempt. So you have three attempts at each lift, and the idea here is that you need one lift to qualify your total to count as finishing the meet. You can't. If you miss all three lifts, you're disqualified from the meet. At local meets, they'll let you keep competing because it's a local meet. But you know, at a bigger meet, they'll. That's it. Like you're done if you don't hit all three lifts. So with that in mind you want your opener to be something that you could hit no matter what if you were as sick as a dog if you are a nervous wreck and you're throwing up all morning like you want to be able to hit that weight no matter what so a opener should be something that you could probably hit for you know three reps in training maybe four reps uh maybe two reps if you're a little more advanced so, it's something you could hit for multiple reps, maybe like an, a single at an RPE seven, a single at an RPE seven and a half, if you're familiar with the RPE scale, is where your opener should be. And this is going to accomplish, you know, a couple of things. One is keeping us from bombing out, two is going to build confidence. Everyone, I mean, to this day, like until that first squat, I have butterflies in my stomach, my legs are shaky. But as soon as I hit that first squat and you hit a nice, strong, opener because it's a weight you've done a million times, your confidence goes skyrockets and then you're ready to actually kind of start pushing things. So you want to hit that nice first rep to get your confidence up. And then you also want to hit it to get your ref's confidence up. So the refs are watching you, right? You want to show them that you know what you're doing and you can hit all the commands, no questions asked, so that next time you come up, they're not watching you more closely. Because if your first squat, you like almost rack it too soon and you barely hit depth, you bet next time you come up there they're going to be down on their hands and knees staring at how low you're going and making sure that you're going low enough whereas if you bury that first squat they're, they're probably going to be paying a little less attention to your depth so you want to just you know just crush that first lift and leave no questions so the judges aren't like skeptical of you coming up next time
2: around yeah it's like max Scherzer's a little more likely to get a third strike called than <laughs> it's not max Scherzer. yeah yeah it's funny because you know these i mean these judges are human right and they are sitting in the same spot watching you know potentially 150 to 200 squats like there's gonna be some that are possibly questionable maybe they were zoned out a little bit you know fatigue sets in on their end too so you know like you said Give yourself a pretty good case. If you bury the first one or two, you might get a gift. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or if you're on a popular Instagram yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, lastly, for meet week, uh, I'm just going to throw it to you because you put this bullet point in. I'm not sure what you mean. What do you mean get prepared beforehand?
1: So, I just, there's always one person that shows up <laughs> to weigh-ins. And they just don't have their stuff. (laughs) So take the week before Uh, and get your stuff together and double check. Make sure you have everything. Like make sure you have everything you're going to wear on the platform. Make sure you have all the shoes that you need, all of the belts and wraps and whatever other equipment you might need. Like figure out what you want to eat that day. Go grocery shopping, like get it all prepared beforehand. So you're not scrambling the night before the meet all stressed out because you don't have this or you can't find, you know, baby powder or whatever, whatever it is you need. So if you get that list together beforehand and make sure you have everything and then, you know, the night before double check, everything gives you some time to get some stuff if you need it. Uh, So that is a mistake I've made many of times (laughs) because I'm not a good preparer. Uh, So make (laughs) (laughs) make sure you take your time and, and really prepare because you don't want any extra stress meet day. Like there's already enough to be stressed about. So you want to control the controllables and get everything as like ready as possible so that you don't have to think so much
2: come time to lift. And maybe take a second and go through the rule book for the Federation that you're choosing to compete with. So you can show up with all the things that you need, like a pair of shoes for deadlifts. <laughs> and um
1: uh, legless underwear yeah
2: <laughs>
1: but we'll have uh sam sam on to talk about all those deets
2: yes sam will give us a rundown in a little bit so for meat day right we're trying to show up prepared we're paying attention what are some things that we should be ready for in terms of you know how long like how long the meat's gonna take how how much time are you gonna have in between you know, exercises where like you're, you're managing things you don't typically have to in training where like you just start your training and maybe you're done with your session in 90 minutes, maybe two hours. And then all of a sudden you have to do your squats and you have a 45 minute break. And then you want, so you end up lifting for a much longer amount of time, like throughout the day. And so what are some ways that people can prepare for that or things they might need so that they don't get caught off guard?
1: Yeah, it's a a long day for sure. I mean, most meets typically the rules are at eight, lifting starts at nine. And then, you know, depending on how many people are competing, that meet can last anywhere to like 4 p.m. if it was very well run to, you know, 8 p.m. if it was not so well run. Um, So, (laughs) you know, you don't like you got to be prepared for that that long meet, right? You got to be prepared for the worst case scenario. So I like to prepare to be there for 12 hours. Like worst case, you're going to, I've been at a meet for longer than 12 hours in my life. I haven't seen a meet that bad in a very, very (laughs) long time, but I've I've been there. So it's like, you want to be prepared for that. And that requires food, lots of food. And I think nutrition is meat day nutrition is probably one of the most botched things in the powerlifting world. And having stuff to eat that you can eat with a less than perfect stomach, right? You're going to be nervous. Everyone is a little nervous. You're going to be hopped up on adrenaline. You're probably going to have a good amount of caffeine in your system. All things that suppress your appetite. Right. So you want things that are easy to digest, things that you enjoy, and things that you normally eat that you are not going to be, you don't want to change it up, meat day. You don't want to introduce some food that you haven't eaten in forever. It's like, and I think this is what people love to do is like they take meat prep so seriously and they're eating very strictly and they get to the meat day and they're like, oh, I'm I, i I'm here, let me just eat all the donuts and Sour Patch Kids in the world, and then they spend the whole day in the toilet and wonder why their meat performance sucks. It's like you want to prepare yourself with, like I said, foods that you're used to eating, foods that are easily digestible, and foods that you can eat in between the lifts at a gym, right? You're at a gym, you're going to lift, you're probably going to spend 30, 45 minutes lifting and then you're probably going to have a good 30 minutes to maybe even two hours where you're not doing anything. So you need to be able to kind of eat in that gap. And I guess both it goes both ways. I've had meets where it's just two flights and you have about 20, 30 minutes in between each each time to warm up and eat. So it's like you got to hit your max, have something that you can eat literally right afterwards and go right into warming up for your next lift. Because if you don't eat, which I is probably my biggest downfall, is you know I get caught up, lots going on, not hungry because of everything going on, and I won't eat, and then deadlifts come around, and you wonder why you can't lift your opener. <laughs> Fading fast, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Now, in terms of expectations for your own performance, right? I'm sure it's tough. Right, you have numbers that you wanna hit, but is there some approach that you found that is a little bit more realistic or helps keep you know the nerves at bay? Like maybe thinking of numbers as a range rather than like a specific number?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think expectations wise, first meet, first of all it's best to come into it with no expectations. I've mentioned this a couple of times, but you've never competed to meet standards. So I always have this conversation with people at the first meet, like the expectation for you is to put up a total. Like I want you to go out there to complete one successful squat, one successful bench, one successful deadlift and put up a total. And that's better than you've ever done before. So start there. And then, you know, when someone's has a few more competitions under their belt, like you said it's more about having ranges and then i guess goals for the meet like if you want to go in and you want to go nine for nine and just you want to hit the numbers you hit in training and just do it on the platform like that's an awesome goal and i think you can have that expectation like hey i lifted this in the gym i just want to hit the same number at the meet and i want to go nine for nine awesome i personally never saw the point of going nine for nine in a meet. I mean, I guess I understand a little bit, but if I'm gonna go there, I'm going to the meet to try and hit some PRs. So when I know that, I know that if I don't go nine for nine, it's not the end of the world because I'm shooting for numbers that I've never hit before. So again, personally, my strategy is to choose your first attempt, give yourself a range for your second attempt And then give yourself an even bigger range for your third attempt. So we talked about openers being like something you could hit for three reps or like a RPE seven, seven and a half. I want my second attempt to be somewhere around what I hit in the gym, my best number in the gym. So depending on how that opener moved, you know, that might be five to 10% lighter than I've hit in the gym or it might be exactly what I hit in the gym. Usually it's just a little bit less than kind of my best number in the gym, which leaves my third attempt for me to hit that PR. So on the third attempt, I'm attempting to hit a PR depending on how that second attempt felt. So if the second attempt felt really good, the PR attempt's gonna be a little bigger versus the second attempt didn't feel so good, that PR attempt's gonna be a little smaller. But I know all of my third attempts are gonna be a PR. So as long as I don't go six for nine, right? as long as I go better than six for nine, then it's a successful day because I hit a PR on a lift and that's awesome. And I probably hit the numbers that I was hitting in the gym in my second attempts. So I think you need to, I guess, adjust your expectations around how you choose your attempts, I guess is what I'm getting at.
2: And that evolves as your competitive career evolves. The more elite that you get, the less it is about any one lift and more about the total right so it's like you might make this for the strategy side of things you might make a more conservative estimate for like a third attempt on bench if you know, you're in the running for money and might have a better deadlift performance than whoever you're competing against
1: yeah especially as you get stronger those strategies come more into place uh, especially if you are a very good squatter and deadlifter and i also think like meet to meet expectation wise people get caught up myself included with like, Oh, I'm gonna like hit this like 50 pound meat PR next meet. Like I'm just gonna crush my meat PR and just hit this huge, huge PR. And I I think that's almost detrimental where you get yourself caught in kind of moving your expectations too far away and it becomes demotivating. Whereas if you just hit a five to 10 pound meat PR at every meet and you do that for an extended period of time, you are going to be extremely strong. Like honestly, Carlos talks about this all the time and I'm trying to think back and outside of his, maybe his first meet or two, I don't think he's ever hit more than like a five or 10 kilogram PR from meat to meat. He just does it every meet. Every single time he competes, he adds five to 10 kilograms to his total. And that's why he is where he is. It's not because he made a 200 pound jump every time he competed. It's because he consistently over a very long period of time made five to 10 kilogram improvements.
2: Yeah. Well, there we go. Any final thoughts on the topics we just covered before we get Sam in here?
1: So I think if you're hesitant to do your first meet, you should just do it. Even if... You know, powerlifting might not seem like something you want to do or the scene you're in. I think if you are training regularly for anything, even if you're like a runner or a CrossFitter or Olympic lifter, it is valuable to step out of your comfort zone and give competing a try. You're lifting anyways, you're training anyways, your training doesn't have to drastically change. And you don't have to hit certain numbers to do it, and 97.5% of the people that have stepped on the platform for the first time have ended up really liking it and found lessons from it that they were able to take over to their lifting or to their everyday life, and even out of those that didn't compete again, I, I don't think I've ever heard someone say, like, that was a horrible experience i never want to do it again i've had people say like you know that's not for me i had like i gained value out of it but you know like it was this or that wasn't you know for me but they still found it valuable and they were still happy they did it so yeah go compete next meets in july next meets in july (laughs) (laughs) just put in the papers july 23rd hopefully it gets approved And that wraps up part one of the podcast. And now hopefully you have a good idea of why you should do your first powerlifting meet and what to expect going into the meet and kind of some of the hurdles that people face when they are signing up for their first meet or thinking about signing up for their first meet. So hopefully we did a good job convincing you why you should do or at least try to do one, at least one powerlifting meet. And now you're going to pause this podcast episode and sign up for the July meet or a local meet near you. And now that you've signed up for your first meet, it's gonna be very useful to know what to expect leading into the meet on the day of the meet, the day before the meet, in terms of process and procedures and the rules surrounding the different lifts at the meet and how the meet is run. So to do just that, we brought in one of the judges from the USPA, Samantha Reyes, to come on and chat with us about the rules and procedures surrounding a powerlifting meet. So without further ado, please welcome Samantha Reyes.
2: Sweet. So we're back in for part two of this month's podcast. We have an interview with Sam Reyes. So Sam, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today.
0: Thank you for having me. I was... Very excited when you asked who should we interview for our podcast and someone said USPA Connecticut. It was flattering.
2: <laughs> the the woman behind the USPA Connecticut Instagram page.
0: And, and just to make Riley you feel
1: even Riley. better, there was multiple people that asked. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Mo- most people want to speak to my husband. So it's nice to want to be spoken to.
2: (laughs) It's a woman in high demand. So we're going to follow up on part one, where we discussed doing a powerlifting meet and what that might entail. And so the reason that we have Sam on our podcast today is because I don't know your title, but I know you are definitely a judge within the USPA organization. Do you have any other titles there?
0: No. So I'm a USPA state referee.
2: Okay, as and as, that goes on top of the Instagram managing. Yes. Which is not compensated, I'm assuming. I yeah.
0: have gotten... It's a great IG page, though. I've gotten a couple of shirts from USPA <laughs> over the years, so... <laughs> hey,
1: that's like professional status in the powerlifting world. <laughs> <laughs>
2: How many red polos do you have? Two.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right.
2: And so... Are you, this is just me being curious, but are you only qualified to judge for the state of Connecticut, or are you a state referee for all of the states?
0: I am a state referee for all of the states.
2: That's pretty cool. So it's a national certification. So how did you get into judging powerlifting meets and maybe why the USPA? That's not too loaded of a question.
0: So I have been powerlifting for maybe about eight years. And I've been, I immediately was drawn to USPA because they had the 148 pound weight class. And that was just weight that I just naturally was at. So I would just compete there. And then I met Dylan Anderson, the state chair, and he needed help with judges. So I just, I ended up taking the test through him and I ended up taking over the USPA Connecticut Instagram account from him as well, so he could focus on other things.
2: Right, and you can because post more things. So much.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> he doesn't even have his own Instagram, so I don't expect anything. Not anymore. He used to, but
0: he got rid of his own.
2: Big cat. <laughs> so. In order to become a state referee, you have to have competed. Is that correct? Yes,
0: you need to have competed in two USPA meets.
2: You don't have to have a certain total, though. Anybody can be a judge.
0: Anybody can be a judge. You do have to take a 100 multiple choice test as well. And then you also have to do like a practical. So I had to sit with a national level referee and judge a certain amount of flights. And we had to agree on if it was like a good lift or a bad lift. And then you're you're up on your own.
2: Hmm. We had some controversy around that at our gym within the last couple of weeks. Somebody didn't like the calls that they got from a hmm. sitting testing referee. But anyway, that sounds like a nerve wracking experience to be put on... <laughs> Like, but, like, imagine a major league baseball umpire, and <laughs> just like, yeah, you're gonna take your test during the World Series.
0: <laughs> it wasn't so bad,
1: but they have to agree, yeah. so it's not like it's not like it's the new newbie just throwing red lights. So,
0: my, I, I didn't have a button. Uh, the ref I was with, he gave, he had the button. He would say if it was a good lift or not, but I had to tell him what I would say, and we would agree or not. If we disagreed, we could talk it over. And if he was like, okay, I understand your point of view, then he would mark it as a pass. So a newbie wouldn't be actually giving like a, like their first time going. It, d- it doesn't count for them. They're sitting with somebody. Gotcha. Yep. So.
2: And so I guess this would fit more on Meet Day. So let's just get into what happens before Meet Day. And so if somebody is convinced through this podcast to sign up for their first ft meet, Sign-ups are currently live for July 23rd, Resilient Classic 2 at Revolution Fitness close in North Haven. Sam will be there. Paul will be there. I'll be there. So sign up. And if somebody does that, what would be their first interaction with a USPA judge?
0: So the first thing you're going to do is you have gear check and weigh-ins. We offer weigh-in times 24 hours before the meet. So the Friday before... We're available 9 to 11 in the morning and then later at 4 to 6.30 p.m. Friday evening. You can also weigh in the morning of the meet between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m., but that is by appointment only. So you'll have to email uspaconnecticut at gmail.com to schedule that. Um, We will go through all of your equipment first, and then we will go over to the bench and squat racks. We'll get your heights. And then you will weigh in last. And then just when you weigh in, you can wear your singlet, your undergarments, or you can be nude um, in the room. And then you are allowed to wear socks if you're if you're uncomfortable being barefoot. If you don't want to wear socks, because that is technically extra weight, we can put a paper towel down on the scale for you to for you to step on.
2: Okay. And so I guess a few questions about that. What type of equipment might somebody be bringing to a powerlifting meet?
0: So you need to bring anything that you're going to wear on the platform is what you need to bring. So we are going to ask to see your singlet. We will want to see your underwear if you're wearing underwear. We need to see your deadlift socks. We don't care about your squat socks or your bench socks, but your deadlift socks, because they need to cover your entire calf to cover your shin. We want to see your t-shirt if you're wearing a headband. We need to see your shoes for all three lifts. If you're wearing knee sleeves, knee wraps, wrist wraps, elbow sleeves. We also need to see your belt. And we don't offer single or multiply, but if we did, we would want to see your bench shirt, your squat suit, and your deadlift briefs as well.
2: All right, you gotta see people's underwear?
0: Yes, we do. The rule is you cannot wear a boxer or a boxer brief. So anything that's a short that has legs, it has to be a tighty whitey or a brief. Women can wear thongs. I actually have a story on our page of appropriate underwear to wear if you want to wear underwear under your singlet. So you can check that out. But if you don't want to wear underwear, you can go commando as well. But you're going to have, we'll check off that you're going to be commando the day of the meet.
2: Free balling it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Seems like a weird rule, but all these rules were made because someone tried to cheat. Yeah. <laughs> and they had to make the rule. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah so
2: no super compressive slingshot underwear that helps you stand back up in your in your squats. That's That actually happened, like on a national stage within the last couple of years didn't it
1: yeah he got caught with uh briefs under his singlet and like squat briefs not underwear briefs and a slingshot under his singlet for bench awful. in in worlds masters masters world competition <laughs> I guess we're just So up. if the judges see any seams yeah. in your singlet, they're just going to assume you're cheating.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just,
2: I knew he wasn't strong enough, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so the point of a weigh-in, right? So powerlifting is, is a weight class sport. And so let's say somebody is attempting to enter a specific weight class, you know, do they have to weigh in at that weight, like within their bracket, you know, the the day of the meet and then be there what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that they can weigh less ahead of time, but they can't they can compete at a heavier weight if they happen to like gain weight from the Friday to Saturday. So I guess rather than turning that into a question, I'll just say that.
0: Yeah. So, so. you could you can weigh in like tomorrow mor- or Friday morning, weigh whatever, and then eat all day and you're ready to go. You're not going to get on a scale again that Saturday to make sure that you're still within the weight class you signed up for.
2: Yeah. And if it's your first couple of meets or you're not going to set a world record, probably don't need to be too concerned about the weight classes. So a lot of people just tend to train at and compete at whatever weight that they're comfortable at rather than trying to aggressively change it heading into the meet?
0: I would recommend not trying to do a weight cut, especially if it's your first meet. It's just one less thing you have to worry about. Um, it's a stressor. All week I've done a water cut and it, it's stressful leading up to a meet. You really don't want anything to like inhibit your progress on meat day. So if it's your first time, and like you said, if you're not comp- breaking any records, just Sign up for the weight class where what you weigh in already. And honestly, so we're okay with this. If you sign up to be a 67.5 kilogram and then you weigh in and you're heavier, we'll let you jump up to the 75 kilogram class. But there are some meat promoters that won't do that, but that's mostly like top level meat.
1: So if you want to compete in like, say the hundred kilogram weight class, which is 220 pounds, how much are you allowed to weigh? What's the most you can can weigh and still be a 220? Like
0: 100 kilograms.
1: Right, so it's 100 <laughs> kilograms. And then the least you can weigh is the next weight class down. So the next weight class down is what? So it's 90, is what,
0: it's 90 kilograms yeah. is the next one below that.
1: So if you weigh 90 point six kilograms or 90.5 kilograms you're in the 100 kilogram weight class i think that that confuses a lot of people too is that's the the number is the cap once you're over that number you're in the next weight class yes
2: and so again you know this is a sorry remember this is a beginner centric episode and so if somebody's standing at home or listening wondering why the hell would i ever want to weigh in naked Like that doesn't make sense to me if I'm not a highly competitive power lifter, like the reason being your clothes have weight. And then it might be necessary for you to sneak under the, the cutoff point to get into the weight class that you want to be competitive in. So not something that you don't have to weigh in naked. Right. But yeah, every ounce counts. It's so
0: it's optional. And if you're in a weight class and you total the same as someone, whoever is lighter will get the win. So that could be an advantage. Those ounces (laughs) may count if you do take off, if you decide to be nude or just get into your underwear or bra or, you know, whatever you're comfortable with (laughs) is the most important.
2: (laughs) All right. So optional weigh in times, you know, before the meet in the morning, the day before the meet morning, afternoon. Looking for equipment, making sure everything is up to standard, not providing an unfair advantage, taking body weight to make sure that somebody is put in the appropriate weight class. Uh, Do we miss anything about the purpose of that first visit?
1: The only thing I was going to ask is if if people want to check if their equipment is legal in the USPA, where, where can they do that?
0: If you go to the USPA site, uspa.net, you can find their rule book, which includes all the specs for your equipment uh, measurements that are appropriate. And then also we have our 2022 geared approval list that's on there as well, which will give all the sponsors where you're, all of our sponsors are listed out of the approved year. That's acceptable. We will have that in a binder as well for weigh-ins too. I would not recommend waiting until the day of the meet to check if your equipment is approved or not. Because that would be tough to prep with it all this time and not be able to use it.
1: So make sure you go on. We're not going to go through every single piece of equipment. Yeah. Go on the USPA webpage, look up the approved yep. equipment list and make sure your equipment is on the approved equipment list before you bring it I have it to
0: a story on our page about that as well. You can check that out.
2: <laughs> do you have any funny stories about people messing this up? Like I know, I mean, it's not really that funny, but like somebody walked onto the deadlift platform with socks on and they were told that they needed to step off and they couldn't do their deadlifts without shoes. For anything? I mean, powerlifting is already boring, but like, there has to be something funny that happened, right?
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess it's not really funny. We've had like employees and refs loan out their gear to people that because they didn't have items on the approved list. So, like, we've we've loaned out our own personal equipment so people can compete and not have to worry about that one thing. But yeah, the socks. You need shoes. <laughs> You need shoes, you can't wear socks, you can't be barefoot. (laughs) It's
2: admirable. Barefoot meet director last year.
0: Well, yeah, it's another, yeah, our our state chair loaned out his own shoes so someone could compete.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we made it past the day before the meet. So on the meet day, if somebody has never shown up to a meet before, What should they expect the order of operations to look like heading into the first squat of the day?
0: So you're all weighed in. Rules, we'll have a rules meeting probably around 8 a.m. And then after rules, most the people that are in flight A, which is the first flight of the day, can start warming up for squat, which will happen first if you know if you're someone who needs a lot of time warming up i would recommend getting there a little early the gym should be open as early as 7am you know get there and start doing your stretching or whatever you need to do if you want to eat or something but rules at 8 and then people will probably start warming up and then the meet starts at 9
2: so we are separating lifters into flights because like let's say there are 60 people competing If you were to have 60 people in a row do their squat and everybody gets one minute, you'd be squatting once an hour. And if you have three attempts for squats and powerlifting, you're not going to want to do three attempts over the course of three hours, right? So people are separated into what a group would be called a flight, where it might be up to 15 people so that, you know, flight A can do all three of their squats and only have to wait 15 minutes between attempts rather than 60 and then once flight A finishes all of their squats, flight B would go and then flight C and flight D. So how are lifters organized into these flights?
0: So the first flight of the day is flight A and it's gonna be our lightest weight classes go first and they get heavier as each flight goes. So it will depend on, cause I can't tell you how many people will sign up for the 60 kilogram class or the 90 kilogram class. So, but we'll start with the lightest first. And get heavier as each flight goes. And that's by body weight and also, I guess, first attempts too. We'll start with the lightest first attempt and it'll get heavier.
2: Okay. And then will it stay in that same order for the second flight where it's always going to be the lightest weight lifted first, followed, like, ending with the heaviest?
1: The weight stays the same, but the order can change, right? So, like, it's always by lightest weight to heaviest weight. But the order of lifters can change if someone makes a bigger jump than someone else.
2: To Paul's example, if Paul and I both open with a squat of 100 pounds, right? And like, or let's say I open with 100 and Paul opens with 105, you know, I would go first and then Paul would go because his is heavier than mine. But then our next squat, I already forgot the order that I just put us in. Let's say Paul goes to 110 after 105, but I go to 120, our order would then flip where Paul would go first in attempt two and then I would go because mine would be heavier so anyway um we have a bullet point here about how do the lights work so let's say I do a squat and I look over to the left and I see lights what color lights am I hoping for
0: you want to see white lights
2: so what are the two options for lights what do they mean who might give you a a red or a white light what might factor into their decision on what color light they give you
0: so, well, there's we'll say there's three referees on the platform. Each one has a button for their lights. If the lift meets the standard, they will click the white the button for the white light, which means it's a good lift. If the lift does not meet the standard, which is in our rule book, then you will get a red light, and you really want to get at least two white lights. Um, if you get two red lights, then that lift is not good at all. It's a no lift. Yes.
2: So when you are doing your squats, right? Like, let's say you get ready for your first one. There's going to be a judge in front of you. There's going to be a judge to your left, and there's going to be a judge to your right. And all three of them are going to gauge whether or not you met the standards set forth in the USP rulebook for what a squat should look like. Uh, and then either give you a white light if you pass, and a red light if you fail. And if you get two uh, two white lights, that's a good lift. So if the middle judge disagrees, Well, sucks for them because the other two decided that you passed. So that's all you need, (laughs) two out of three. Um, But let's say I'm going to step up to the platform for my first squat. Uh, Do I just walk up there whenever I feel like it? We're kind of going out of order here, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) No. So you need to wait until the head ref says platform ready before you can step onto the platform. And he's going to say, or she is going to say platform ready when the bar is loaded and all the spotters and lifters are not touching the equipment they'll take platform ready and that's your cue to come on
2: spotters and motors. So there's going to be more than just me on the platform. That's right. What are those people doing?
0: So they are, so we'll start with squatting. So they are, the first thing they do is they set up the bar for you. They put all the weight on there and then they're really there for your safety. If you miss a lift, sometimes people fall. They're there to catch the bar and just to keep you safe. You can also for benching, um, they we will have someone available to give you a handoff in case you don't have anyone to help you out with that. So they but their main thing is to load the bar and keep you safe on the platform, prevent you from getting hurt.
1: Yeah, they're the best part about the meat. You don't have to load they a work the hardest all day.
0: Yeah. You <laughs> just get
2: to <the> lift. <laughs> <laughs> so We've weighed in, uh, we've warmed up, you know, maybe we warm up really quick. So we started a warm up right after the rules session. Meet director says, platform ready. There's all these people on the platform looking at me, waiting for me to walk up and get underneath the bar. What are the standards that I should be looking to meet when it comes to the barbell squat?
0: So for the squat, the lifter shall face the front of the platform, facing the head referee. You're going to pick up. The barbell and walk back. So get into your position before you attempt to squat. You're just going to stand there with the bar on your back. Your knees must be locked out and your body is still. Once those two things are met, the head referee will give you the squat command and you're going to descend into the hole and stand right back up. There is no command to stand up. Once you're fully erect, your knees are locked. The head referee will give you the rack command, and then you can put the barbell back onto the rack.
2: It's funny. Like Paul said, all of the equipment rules are because people tried to cheat. I would have never thought that it would be necessary to put in the rule book that you must face the head referee when you unrack your barbell squat. But after being in
1: <laughs> gyms
2: for as long as I have, I, there's some people who face just the wrong way in a squat rack and then walk it 10 feet out of the rack
0: and start squatting. <laughs> it, It must have happened somewhere. (laughs) We have not seen that, though.
2: (laughs) Maybe like performance anxiety, don't want to face the crowd. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So just to clarify, there are two commands on the squat, a start command and a rack command. You do not have to wait at the bottom (laughs) for someone to say up. Every single meet, at least one person pauses at the bottom of their first squat and waits for an up yep. command. So.
2: <laughs> there for a while. <laughs> so earlier talking about red lights, what are some ways that people would get red lights in a squat?
0: I would say the biggest one, this goes for all three, is jumping the commands. If you put the bar back before you get the rack command, the lift is no good jumping the commands, and then the second biggest one is depth. In USPA, you have to squat below parallel. Um, if you squat at parallel, above it, the lift is no good. Your hip crease needs to be below your knee, and there's a picture in the rulebook, also a story on our Instagram page if you're unsure of what we're going to be looking for, but depth is a big one as well
1: just a comment on depth i think there's a lot of confusion on depth because of uh, a misunderstanding of the way the rule is written and the way the rule is written is that the the crease of the hip must break parallel so you have to actually get below parallel so a lot of people show me videos and they'll be like why did this get red lighted like this is a deep ass squat like i should have got in white lights and i'll look at it and the crease of their hip will be in line with their knee. It'll be nice and flat. And they'll be like, see, it's deep, deep enough. And it's not. It needs to be below uh-huh. the top of your knee. So if you draw a line from the crease of your hip, so that little divot in your shirt or your singlet when you are at the bottom to the top of your knee, it needs to go downwards. It needs to slope towards your hip. Not be flat, not slope towards your knee. If you put a tennis ball on it, it would roll towards you.
2: So is there something special that is put on the platform where if you've been squatting high, all meat prep, it'll be there on meat day because of that special thing. On
0: the
2: <laughs> I'm assuming the laughing means no, No, there is nothing, oh, okay. nothing no. there. So you should, you should <laughs> squat low enough in your training and then it won't be an issue on meat day.
0: <laughs> no, you need to. You need to practice this, uh, you know, squat below parallel during your meat prep to be able to do it on meat day. There are the exception, but I wouldn't recommend gambling that <laughs> on meat day. Shit.
2: I think we should post that audio clip on the Revolution Instagram page. <laughs> so, let's say I finished my squat and I squatted in flight A. I should go warm up for bench next.
0: This was your, so your first attempt? No, no. You have three, two. You have another, a second attempt, squat. So you need to go to the table and tell the people working your next attempt.
1: Something that people often forget is you have three attempts. We've talked about in the first episode how those attempts should be ascending in weight. So after you crush your first attempt and you hit your opener and make all the judges think you're the best squatter in the world. You go up to the table where the referee is and you have to tell them your next attempt. And you have, what, a minute to do that, right, Sam? Yes. So don't go wandering off. (laughs) It's very easy because you just hit the lift and you're like, yeah, I hit my lift and you get all excited. You got to make sure you remember to go give your next attempt.
0: (laughs) Yeah. If you don't give your next attempt, we're just going to increase it by, I guess, just the next weight up in the two and a half kilograms. So we'll just put that for you if you don't give us something within that minute. And then just to make a note on your first attempt, it should be a very easy lift. I've seen it a lot where people have very heavy first attempts. You really want something that's light, probably an RPE seven is good. You really don't want to go in there. It's just going to like break your confidence down if your first lift of the day is a struggle. So just uh, throw that in.
2: Yeah, that's great advice. So let's say we finish our squat, we go tell the judges right away what we want our next attempt to be, we exit the way that traffic is supposed to flow to, depending on like if you're looking at the platform to the right of the platform at our meets, right? So you exit, you do all three of your squats, you know, you tell your judges after every attempt, And then let's say flight A finishes their squats and flight B is about to start. Is this an appropriate time for me to start warming up for bench?
0: So that I would say is a tougher question. It really depends. For me personally, my opening attempt bench would probably be around 150 pounds. I don't need that much time to warm up. If you need a long time, you really have to kind of, I guess, assess the situation. You really have to take an account that, okay, yeah, I'm in flight A, then I have to flip, you know, flight B, C, and D are going to go after me. You kind of have to take an account for that. You're probably not going to warm up right away. You could probably wait a good, I would say an hour or so, but I think the best thing you can do is really just try to pay attention to what's happening on the platform and there will be an announcer So you can kind of plan accordingly of when you should be starting up for bench. Our announcer will say, oh, we're going to do like 15 minutes until we start benching or half an hour. So we do try to give everyone as much warning ahead of time, but it's going to vary per lifter.
1: Yeah. So the timing of everything is probably the hardest part your first time and take some practice but knowing how long it takes you to warm up to your max is important to know because you're going to need to give yourself the appropriate amount of time to warm up. And then it's also very important to pay attention to what's going on. It's very easy to like, after you're done lifting, like go hide in a corner and eat and like not pay attention to what's going on but then you won't hear the announcer or see the TV screens that tell you the order of the lifters. So you need to be listening. So you know when you're coming up in your flight, you know, the announcer will be announcing who's next, who's on deck, who's in the hole. There'll be a TV screen with the order. So you can see how many lifters are ahead of you. So you have to be aware during the flight, but then after the flight, you have to be aware, of how many more flights there are. If there's only two flights, you might have to go warm up right away. But if there's four four more flights before you go again, mm-hmm. you know, all those flights have to squat. And then you have to think that each flight is going to take approximately 30 minutes. So you can kind of do some rough math there. And you don't know exactly how long they're going to take. It depends how big the flight is. But 30 minutes is a good estimate to, to kind of time out how much time you need to warm up. And then Back to our podcast one here is like, you have to remember it's a long day and you have to give yourself time to eat. So I usually am telling people immediately after they squat that this is the time to eat before they start warming up for bench. So you want to try to relax a little bit, eat, and then ramp it back up for bench.
2: Sweet. So we finished squat. We did some math, figured out we have an hour and a half between squat and what we expect to bench. So we ate, we relaxed. The announcer says, all right, we'll be starting flight A bench in 20 minutes. So you get warmed up. And then meet director says, platform ready for you. You're up next in your flight. You step onto the platform. What should be expected of somebody looking to provide a valid bench press?
0: So what will give you a good lift on the bench press. Um, if we could just step back a little, just cause if this is geared towards newer lifters. So I really sure. haven't, I haven't seen this, but the head referee says platform ready. You're going to get on the bench and you're going to pick up the bar and get ready into the position. And then they're going to tell you, they're going to give you the start command. You're going to bring the bar to your chest and then the judges are going to be looking for, your butt has to stay on the bench. If it comes up, that's a disqualification. Your feet cannot move. They can rock actually from like your toes to your heels, but like they cannot move like laterally. Your heels can come up if your toes stay down, but like, like I said, they can't move laterally. So they give you the start command. You bring it to your chest. You're going to get the press command and then you bring the bar back up. You're going to lock out your arms. The judges are going to see if you're if there's any downward motion, if there's if you start the press, bring the bar down and then continue back up. That's a disqualification as well. And then you'll get the rack. Command when you your arms are fully straight and locked out, you can put the bar back.
1: When the judge is giving the press command, what are they looking for to let them know it is time to give that press command?
0: So the head ref, they just want to see that the bar and your body are completely still. If you're kind of like swaying or moving around, they're not going to give you a command. You need to be completely still, I guess in the hole.
1: Yeah. So if the bar is sinking into your chest you are not going to get a press command until the bar is done sinking and is motionless on your chest. So, the more control you show over your bench press on the way down, and the faster you come to a complete stop on your chest, the faster you will get a press command. So that's why you'll see some people get press commands much faster than other people. It's not because the judge likes one person better than the other person, it's because One person is showing control and becoming motionless faster than the other person.
2: And so something unique to the bench press that you mentioned earlier, you are allowed to have somebody hand the bar off to you. Uh, Your husband might take issue with that, but are you allowed to bring your own person to give you a handoff?
0: Yes. You can have a friend or family member hand off the bar to you. As soon as they hand it to you, they need to step off of the platform in order for the head ref to give you a start command.
2: Okay. So your friend can kind of make your life a little bit more difficult if they are slow to get out of the way. So if you are giving a handoff, jump off the platform (laughs) athletically. Um, And then what are some common ways that people do not receive white lights for their
0: bench press? So the same thing jumping the commands. Bench is an interesting one because the lifter cannot see the head ref. The head ref will um does upward and downward motions for some reason even though the lifter can't see them. So I would say in this case I would uh sometimes you may be hard of hearing or just to prevent of an issue of jumping the command, I would let the head ref know like can you yell or I'm hard of hearing or something like that, let them know so they can speak very loudly because you cannot, you can't see them. It might be a little bit more difficult than when you're squatting or deadlifting. Another way to get disqualified is your butt coming off the bench, your feet moving laterally. So from the positioning that they were in, they just move completely to the side. Also, downward motion of the bar. So after you get the press command, you go up, we drop it, and then you go back. What else? I think those are the big ones.
2: I think Paul's got one that can cause
1: some red light. Well, the only other one that I had was like uneven lockout, but that oh, you don't yeah. really see off you don't very really see as often as the other ones. And I was gonna just comment that the like up and down rule is kind of a rule on all the lifts is Yeah. You don't once the bar is moving up, there can't be any downward motion. So if you start to slow down and you get to a sticking point, you can come to a complete stop as long as you never actually go downwards. But as soon as the bar goes down, then it's a no lift. So quite often you see people who will do a lift and, I don't know, maybe like mentally they give up a little bit, and then they're like, no, I can do it, and they go again. (laughs) Like Unfortunately, it's very awesome looking that you like saved it, but it doesn't count.
2: <laughs> cool. So, bench press, right? You remember, after we finish, we go tell the judge's table what you want your next attempt to be. Exit, come back, do all three lifts or all three attempts. Uh, flight finishes, and now time comes for deadlift. You get that warning 20 minutes, start warming up your deadlift, maybe a little earlier than 20 minutes because deadlifts tend to be heavier and take a little longer. And you're probably tired at this point, right? So let's say you are getting ready for your deadlift, and again, platform becomes available. What are some things that people should keep in mind for the last lift of the day?
0: So deadlift, uh, we only have one command here, and you're going to walk onto the platform, again, facing the head referee. Do not face the banner that's behind you. All you're going to do is walk onto that platform and just pick up the bar. You're going to stand with your knees and hips and shoulders fully locked out. And the head ref is going to give you the down command and you place the bar down. You cannot (laughs) drop it (laughs) from where you're at. at.
2: Okay. So I don't know what questions do we have about deadlifts? I was trying to think of something other than like, how do people miss it, right? So one command seems pretty straightforward. It goes up or it Mm -hmm. doesn't. And then as long as you don't put, or as long as you don't let go of the bar at the top, you should get some white lights. But how else could somebody get red red lighted for their deadlifts?
0: Another one is hitching the bar up. So hitching is upward and downward jerking of the bar against your body. It's technically downward motion, but it's also called hitching. And then there is also ramping will get you red lighted and that's like using your thighs to I guess get the bar to the top.
2: You know,
1: ramp it up your thighs.
2: (laughs) You're looking for a visual. Like imagine somebody who's just above their knees on a deadlift and they push their knees forward and kind of like lean their torso back and stand up that way
0: well just search strongman deadlifting <laughs> 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 they're allowed to ramp so <laughs> it's like you kind of sit a little bit and rest the bar on your thighs and yeah. stand up that way
1: kinetic connecticut's own uh rob kearney and derek poundstone are world-famous hitchers. Uh, so if, you, if you want to see it see it done at the, the most elite level, get, yeah. get, look them up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but don't do it in powerlifting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't do it. Another uh, rule for disqualification is if you move your feet. So we see this, I feel like mostly with sumo, some sumo puller, pullers, their feet will be wide, and when they bring the bar down, they – turn their feet in but that's not allowed that'll get you disqualified if you move your feet they need to be completely still
2: Hmm. gotta watch out for the toes well
1: luckily we use a deadlift bar so you got a little extra room there Uh, not like some other federations that don't let you move your toes and use a regular bar Uh
2: (laughs) (laughs) i don't actually think we've talked about this that's a great Uh, part of powerlifting to bring up? Am I going to be using the same bar for all three lifts?
0: No. So we have a 25 kilogram squat bar. I do not know the diameter, but it is a little thicker. And then for benching, we will use a 20 kilogram power bar. And then for the deadlift, we have a deadlift bar. So three different bars.
1: (laughs) Yes. So the squat bar is thicker and longer and weighs more. So it weighs 55 pounds-ish instead of 45 pounds. The bench bar is the bar that you're probably used to using in a gym. Your stereotypical three sections of knurling type bar that weighs 44 pounds, 20 kilograms. And then the deadlift bar is a skinnier, longer, bendier bar that uh, you will be using for deadlifts. So if you have a opportunity to train on them before the meet, it is beneficial. But if you do not, it is not the biggest difference in the world, and unless you are moving very large amounts of weights, you probably won't notice many of the differences in the bars.
0: Paul, I have a question for you. What brand of bars are we using
1: at the meet? (laughs) So, we are using an ISF squat bar and a rogue deadlift bar and a Texas power bar for the three bars.
2: All right. So, we finished deadlifts, right? It's all done
1: one more comment on deadlifts uh another common thing that people get uh red lighted for on deadlifts it's a a rule on all three lifts but you see it most on deadlifts is uh not locking out completely or you'll see a lot of times people pulling and never really get a down command and you're like why didn't they get a down command and i think this is especially with sumo deadlifters because uh it's much easier to kind of like fake the lockout with sumo deadlift But the knees need to be locked out and the shoulders and hips need to also be locked out. So a lot of times with sumo, you'll see the hips be locked out, but the knees soft or the shoulders still kind of slouched forward.
2: And that is not a completed lift. So let's say we wrap up our deadlifts. There's an award ceremony afterwards, right? So who's going to make the podium and why does everybody get a medal? (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, for each weight class, we have a first, second, and third place winner. The person with the highest total will win first place, and then second and third. If there are competitors in the same weight class, I said this already. Um, if there are competitors in the same weight class that have the same total, the person who weighed in lighter will will win. Um, we also have a best overall lifter, which is chosen by the highest dot score, which is just a formula that takes into consideration your body weight and your total.
2: Right. So lifting 1500 pounds at 200 pounds body weight is going to result in a lower score than lifting 1500 pounds at a 160 pound body weight. So cool. So yeah, with the with the classes being broken down into uh, weight classes and age categories, there are quite a lot of subcategories for powerlifting meets that may only contain 60 people. So there's a good chance that, you know, if you're kind of on the edge or on the fence as to whether or not you should compete, chances are, you'll be the only one in your weight and age class. So unless you're a 28 year old, 200 pound dude, uh,
1: (laughs) or or a 148 or a 165 pound woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> so I think but that's I'll... why there's the best lifter award uh, yeah. to, to, to make some competition around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but should not be competing, expecting, I don't know, to win, right? At least not your first one. It's about the experience.
0: It should about... be. <laughs>
1: Being your best self.
0: (laughs) Testing your limits. See what you can do.
2: (laughs) So uh, we were talking before we got recording, but Sam just hit a great squat, a number that's been in her head for a while. So Sam, as somebody who has been on both sides of the platform, as well as volunteering, uh, do you have any tips for people who might, you know, be worried about being prepared for a meat day?
0: One of the things that I do that I think everyone should do is during meet prep, practice the commands. If you can have someone say them to you, that's great. You can do them in your head, but I would practice the commands before meat day. Also, another thing that I like to do, so I normally train during the week at 3 p.m. Not because the meet is always at 9 a.m., I'll throw in a morning session, at least for squatting and benching, just to kind of get used to training or I guess, yeah, training that early. Because normally I train at three, I can eat two to three times prior. Meat day comes around, I can only eat once and, you know, probably a little tired. So those are the few couple of things that I like to do to try to prepare for meat day. I can't
1: believe we've been talking about doing your first powerlifting meet for almost two hours now. And this is the first time we've mentioned practicing commands in your training. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Sam. (laughs) Please practice your commands in your training. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I do. I do.
2: That is a huge tip along with the time of day. I think that's very often overlooked where if you've been training at 5, 6 PM for the last six months, And then you just show up at nine a.m. like, and possibly on an empty stomach because you're not used to. Well, I guess you show up at like seven thirty a.m., but you're possibly on an empty stomach because you're nervous and you're, you know, just not used to training on an empty stomach. Are you warming up like that bar is going to feel way heavier than what you'd expect. So,
0: it it could have a big impact.
2: (laughs) Yeah, some some great advice. And then finally, how do you? prepare yourself for meat day nutrition. I think we've talked earlier about how like Paul brings a ton of food. Like it's better to have too much than too little. Do you have a similar
0: approach? Yeah. That's actually one of the exact same things that I said is it's, you're better having an abundance of food and not needing it than not having enough food or drinks. Like revolution's nice. You can fill up your water there, but Gatorade and stuff like that. It's, it's nice. It's better to have it and not need it than not have it at all. But for my meat day nutrition, I do lots of carbs, some fat and some protein. I don't really have much of an appetite on meat day. um, But like for breakfast, I like to do Kodiak cake waffles with honey or some maple brown sugar oatmeal. And then throughout the day, I'll have a protein shake, maybe a peanut butter and jelly, some fruit. And then I also like potato chips. So I'll snack on that stuff throughout the day.
2: It's almost like you just admitted something. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I like potato chips.
0: I love potato chips and I don't eat them normally. <laughs> but something about the like the fat and the salt, it's just like so satisfying when you're kind of nervous.
2: <laughs> satisfying even not on meat day.
0: Yeah, that's true okay. too. <laughs> true.
2: All right. Sam has been our most prepared guest, I think, ever. She <laughs> told us again before we got recording that she spent over an hour preparing, going through use PA rule book, and making sure she had examples for everything. So, thank you for being so prepared, uh, more prepared than we were.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on. If people want to find out more about USPA, where can they do that?
0: (laughs) Our Instagram handle is USPA Connecticut.
1: And then the website is what? USPA.net? Yep. All right. So those are the two spots you're going to want to go look. And then if you want to go follow Sam's training, you can do that too. What's What's your Instagram, Sam?
0: So it's underscore underscore Sam Reyes.
1: So... If you wanna keep up with Sam and her squat PRs, that's that's the place to be.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Underscore Sam Reyes was already taken on huh? and needed the second one.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's two. It, it <laughs> and
2: even, even sometimes other people have commented on this where like you'll be benching and Riley is just like on your bench.
0: He yeah. just doesn't
2: he just does not care. It's incredible. Um, yeah.
0: We have to be together. <laughs> he trusts me that I am not going to harm him and drop the weight. So.
1: Huh. so, so much so there there has to be a no Riley on the deadlift platform rule. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. he actually did that the other day. I was warming up and he walked right under the weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so he sh- yeah, the deadlift platform no no, but ben he can he can bench with me. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, thanks again, Sam. I appreciate all the insight. If you are still interested or would like to learn more about USPA powerlifting, check out the website, check out the IG. And like I said earlier, we got signups open for the July 23rd Resilient Classic Part 2. So check that out.
0: Thanks, guys. Thank you.
1: And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully now you are all fired up to do your first powerlifting meet and you are more comfortable with what to expect at that meet and how to handle yourself on meet day. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, please share to rate, review and subscribe, especially on Apple podcast or iTunes where you can actually write a review for the podcast. Those are highly helpful and Let's see those times for the sandbag hold for the March challenge to get some free coffee from Victus Coffee and some free swag from Resilient or Revolution. And then we hope to see you all at the March meet on March 26th. Lifting starts at 9 a.m., $10 a mission. Kids under 12 are free. We'll be taking donations at the door for open doors outdoors, so please, bring some extra money to donate to them. And if you haven't already, go sign up for the July Meet and we hope to see you on the platform.